I want to just say, say, like, we're recording this on Valentine's Day. There's going to be a lot of love. I hope so. I hope so. Welcome back to a somewhat love-drenched episode of Radio Juxtapose. My name's Doug Gillen. Coming up today, Evan Preco joins forthcoming Juxtapose cover artist Christian Rex Van Minen. This isn't Christian's first appearance on the Radio Juxtapose podcast, but it has been a couple of years, and we thought it was a pretty good time for a refresher. To be honest, I want to let the guys get straight into this one because it's a real journey that takes us from Plato's cave through the Reformation landing somewhere on gummies. As with most art podcasts, it always helps if you have a quick scan over the artist's Instagram page before jumping in, and this one is no different. If you like it, let us know, subscribe, share the love, and most importantly, enjoy the episode. This is Evan Preco in conversation with Christian Rex Van Minen for Radio Juxtapose. I want to call this like an emergency podcast because we're doing this in a rush because you're the cover of the next issue of Juxtapose. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I feel the love. I'm so grateful for so much with that. I mean, yeah, thanks, man. How are you doing? Like we, You and I, we've known each other for years. Like, how are you doing? How are things? How's life? How's painting life? Just it's load it. Just, 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 yeah. Let's just go yeah. in. Let's do it. It's good. Life, I mean, I'm good. Life's rich, interesting, strange, bewildering, complicated exciting scary you know i don't know can i ask you something that i i think i really when you said it this morning that you procrastinate like i don't do you do you really i mean if it has to do with correspondence absolutely i put off as much of that as i can for as long as i can until i hit that critical moment where things could get bad and then do it all at, the, at once you know it's that's been my mo for years i'm not sure really how to change that it's a conscious effort to focus my time in only a couple directions are you good at deadlines yes very i don't miss deadlines there's like a kind of brutal prioritization protocol <laughs> in my life you know well, I mean, okay, yeah, first yeah. off, I interrupted a, a Valentine's Day hike. It rained us out, man. It was it's okay. a soggy one here in Santa Cruz. So Okay. Well then yeah. I don't yeah. feel that bad then. Where are you? Are you I'm in Los Angeles. I have felt that I feel all the things that you just said about life. It feels like there's a lot of things to be slightly uncertain about. It feels like there's a lot of things to kind of question. But the one thing that you cannot deny is that you have a studio practice by which you've had for years now that um, gets more and more um, elegant, complicated, and beautiful, and messy, and disgusting, and great all at once still. What what keeps you motivated? Like, what, how, are, how are you staying locked in and motivated? Or do you feel now that you've done it for so many years, like you feel that you can let go a little bit more. I wish I could respond to that as if it were a static thing. I think everything is has the potential now to be completely upended. I've learned what has motivated me in the past was largely fear. Fear of what? I think it's more of the faceless archetype of fear. I mean, fear of economic insecurity, fear of destitution, fear of a lack of meaning, a fear of not fighting the good fight. Yeah, a lot of fear. Um, I mean, there's a lot of like gratification in the process of painting, but I don't think I'm alone in that sentiment in terms of what motivates us to work. And I think that's sort of, I'm in the process of consciously unraveling that. So I don't know what will motivate me in the years to come. You know, maybe this, maybe it'll, I'll put myself out of business by being too well. <laughs> Did you ever have a fear in your ability though? No, no. I mean, it's like you, you see these, like, I've seen improvement in little, in the little way and in the big way. And I've, I haven't, that hasn't been disproven in my experience. So again, like, I don't know that like maybe that, maybe there is an end to that. I don't know. I don't want to 
test fate in that way, but here we are. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's largely been unconscious, which is a scary thing when you start to look at it. How much do you allow? I mean, because I, I was thinking about this last, like last night, um, sitting in bed. It's about eleven thirty, and I watched like the opening monologue uh, for John Stewart because John Stewart just took over the Daily Show again. And I watched the opening monologue, and he said some things as he is wont to do. He made made fun of the current climate of politics in America. Donald Trump is not an old man. He's an old man. <laughs> he is objectively an old man. But then he also ended on a, a really, really strong moment of hope that no matter what happens in the given year, there are still good people out there trying to do good things. I've learned one thing over these last nine years, and I was glib at best and probably dismissive at worst about this. The work of making this world resemble one that you would prefer to live in is a lunch pail job day in and day out do you feel any sense of do you feel a sense of positivity outside of maybe your own daily sphere or do you feel pretty rattled by what you see hmm. i'm i'm get hung up on the words um so so positive is a tricky one yeah of course um and i you know just just tracking back to the beginning of your question I don't think good people and bad people is a static thing either. I think that that is a, that can be, there's a bright side and a dark side to that. Everybody can change for the better or for the worse. Generally, I think, yeah, I'm a pretty positive person. Um, it's just, I have accepted that we are not going to be able to understand the changes at hand cosmically and as a, as a species as souls it's some of it is outside of our ability to comprehend that i think i'm just in awe you know of it all i don't know if that's a positive feeling or a negative feeling it's but it's um it's intense you know did fatherhood change you yeah of course absolutely i mean in in which way what do you which way are you asking in terms of uh, if, my, if i have a positive outlook on life did it give you more of a uh i would say did fatherhood give you more of an opportunity to see the wonder and awe around you because you were not only trying to facilitate that feeling to your child children or was it something that it kind of um it just illuminated positive, like illuminated things that illuminated wonder for you. I think I've always had that. And I know that that's what, if there's one thing that I can share with my children, it is that. But what comes with becoming a parent is the, the magnitude of protecting that. You know, I realize how hard it has been for me to protect my heart, to protect my soul in this world, to navigate this path, it's incredibly difficult. I've been given a lot of opportunity and I, you know, it's a fucking miracle that I've arrived where I'm at within, in the state that I'm at. And just knowing that I have to look after my children in that way to protect them, protect their hearts and minds, it's a, it's a big thing, you know? Um, but there's no choice in the matter. I wouldn't say that having children all all of a sudden was this switch that flipped where it's like, oh, fuck, I better adopt and fabricate a yeah. positive personality quickly, right. a positive worldview. Right. It's all been there. Right. Um, I think you have to learn how to articulate it more clearly. Just I think anytime you want to teach something, you're going to learn it more intimately by having to divulge, by having to make it understandable, having a a deeply inarticulated positive worldview has to become articulated for your children and for the people that you love. And that's a difficult process. It sounds almost like a silly question, but I think it just, you know, so many people are in wonder of your technical ability. They're they're in wonder of the image making that you that you create. Like that just this you are a, a very unique painter. I want it, it sounds simple, but what are you painting right now? Like what what is it that you feel like you're painting these days? Unity. Um, hmm. This collapse of 
duality, um, an attempt to transcend duality, attempt to present something that is neither positive nor negative, but whole and ecstatic. I think that's, in my view, what ecstasy is or, or faith or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. It's all of it. You can't parse it out. You can't pick and choose. It's all one. That's what I feel deeply. And that's what I'm trying to express. I think that the surrealistic approach to art allows for that. It allows mm-hmm. for that to come through. That strange dance between the subconscious and conscious mind, intuition and counterintuition. Yeah, so that, that's what I'm trying to paint is that those states, um, but trying is not the word because it's not really an intellectual endeavor. It's an action-based thing. There, I think the intellect dips its hands in and out of the process in, in different proportions. Does that make sense? It does. It does. You know, but it's so funny when, you, when you're saying this. I'm, I was remembering the times when you used to do like, when you used to paint and interact with comments on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I was always wondering, was that like, did that sort of performance and interaction in a way, did that break what would be this kind of intuitive and counterintuitive kind of method? Like, did it, did that, was that an attempt for you to kind of break out of your sort of, sort of overwhelming individuality while you were painting? Like what was like what was that act, and how does that affect what you do now? Because I was so fascinated by you doing that. Yeah, um, thanks. I, I think that it's not so much like an interruption as much as a realistic depiction of what the, the deep inner personal life and this noetic expression of noetic truth coupled with surviving on the internet like the rest of us surviving Mm. with social media and that you know this process this indirect painting technique is built with layers and that's a very appropriate way for me to express this feeling of having these layers in life you know having a you know i wouldn't have a career without social media hard Mm. stop without you i wouldn't have a career without you and social media like no way that's a big part of my life. I'm not a monk. You know, I don't, I'm not an aesthetic. I'm not living in isolation. I don't have a huge social life, but you know, what does exist is largely on social media. So having that exist, having that conscious interface on the skin of those portraits, which was mostly portraits Mm -hmm. seemed to be a very like accurate depiction of the totality of my experience as an artist you know um i regret a lot of that i don't think i'll be doing that again it was just a introduction of chaos you know just more and more like yeah again it's just like how much of this everything can i fit into this like how much can i bring in and now you know things change i'm kind of like how do i get out yeah how do i get away um but i don't like i have mixed feelings about it man i really do i don't know what to do i think we're a lot we're a lot of us are in that yeah position right now do you feel like i mean let's go back like we've you know we've probably known each other since like 2008 or so i probably i would assume and yeah. i I, th- I think like careers ebb and flow and they have like there are moments where like you're like oh, i don't know why i did that but it was good that i did it i don't know what but i won't want to go back into doing that if you look at your 2008 self and you look at your 2024 self are you feeling like you know, you just had a really, really fantastic solo show in Madrid. The work seems to get more and more just, I, I there's a richness to your work now that's it's, it seems to get more and more articulated as you get older. But do you look back at like the, the kind of 2008, 2009, 2010, and like, do you, and you kind of think about all the artists that you showed with the galleries and everything, like, do you feel that this world of painting is getting more interesting to you? That was a really roundabout you, way of asking that no, question. Are you, are you saying like the community of painters and contemporary painting or uh, painting just generally? Painting just generally. Yes and no. I mean, I'm I'm incredibly grateful that figuration and craft is back in the way that it is. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes I see it as just like a vehicle for more propaganda. I'm not thrilled about that elaborate there please 
I don't see a lot of the artist in this, the work. I mean, as the figuration proliferates, it's mm-hmm. like in service of something else. And mm-hmm. fuck, man, there's room for extroverts. There's room for everything in the art world. I, it's an ecology. I truly believe that. I don't have to like it all. I want to see evidence of the human heart and soul in painting. I want to see that. That's what I like. That's what I am hungry for. That's what gives me solace. It gives me connection. If I don't see that, it's just junk food. Um, so it's a mixed blessing that figuration is back the way that it is. And maybe that, you know, I don't think anything has really changed. It's, uh, you know, in 2007 or 2008, it was like this overwhelming excitement that there was something happening. There was this bubbling coming up from the underground. And I rode that wave, you know, in a egotistical fury, <laughs> paddle, paddle, paddle. Right. And I caught that wave. Now it's fun. That was really fun, super fun. But that sort of competitive spirit isn't there for me anymore. I don't know what I'm competing with, but like, you know, a lot of that stuff was infused with my own ego and just desperation to be seen. And, um, to get traction, to climb out of working a landscape job for, or driving a fucking truck. I wanted out of that. I wanted nothing but to paint. So it was a very not fully conscious way of being, but you know, in my twenties. So I don't blame myself too much for that. I think everybody goes through that. Do you um, remember the, do, so, but do you remember the first time you, you did some sort of painting where you realize like, Oh my God, I think, I think this is, I think this is it. Like, I think I, I think I can, no longer have another job like this is it yeah i mean it was how that long has that feeling like, lasted <laughs> like well it's not so much anymore because everybody's so fucking good it was like when i when i mm-hmm. kind of like cracked the code on indirect painting in my own weird way which was just this love affair with rembrandt that whole history i was like yeah i was like holy fuck i got it like there's no way anybody can stop me this is like you know, and of course, it was that kind of thinking, like external, externally considering. Um, but yeah, that was the hugely motivating moment in 2007, 2008, when all of a sudden I realized I could do this because it was rare, that type of painting at that moment. But now it's not yeah. so rare. And it, craft is like at an incredible level. It's an amazing um, so thing, actually, that you just... Like that well, unique <laughs> yeah well it's amazing that you said because you know in 2007 if, if you told somebody well i i really want to paint like rembrandt or i'm really it's like people would have been like what the fuck you like what are you talking about it like, just wasn't it, it seems crazy now because now it's like people would be like oh yeah you know like it, it, it it's just so different like how that that moment in time if you would have said to out loud to many people well, I, I really want to paint like rembrandt people would be like I mean, I'm okay. But it just wasn't a thing. But you've seen it. I mean, you saw yeah. the it, the elbowing in of of uh, whatever that is, and and then it just kind of got co opted. And now I don't know what it is. I mean, I I don't want to come off as being bitter or cynical. It's like the the yin yang, right? That little emergence and disappearance thing. Now it is the thing. And so what is not the thing? Because mm-hmm. that will be the thing real soon. Was there a particular show that was like kind of the one for you where you where it it feels like there was a something that you can you can look back on and be like, you know, that was a show that really kind of maybe allowed my allowed myself to to become more myself. It was seeing a odd nerdrum book mm. at the Denver Public Library. This was this is where how I was getting my information. I, was, I would I went to the Denver Public Library just looking for books on yeah, people like Rembrandt. And when I saw Odd Nerdrum, I saw that like someone had picked up the torch. I mean, uh, 300 years after Rembrandt. And that was hugely inspiring. His whole concept of on kitsch. I don't know. Have you read that? I think we might have actually published it on the website at one point. That's profound. I mean, and, and it illustrates what he was up against as an artist. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a scholar on odd Nerdrum. I don't, I, I don't know a whole lot about his life or, but I do know that when he came up in the eighties, it was a hard sell. So the, that kind of figuration 
especially references to the esoteric and figuration, the sort of like gloomy quality, he was really marginalized, kind of still is. And I think Giger is the same way, you know, weirdly. He's had a little bit of a yeah. renaissance, but yeah, Odd Nerdrum seems to always be on the periphery of like, you know, there's just people who acknowledge his sort of influence on a new generation of painters, but he doesn't often get put into sort of that institutional sort of language now. I mean, there's some yeah. of his works in museums, but it's, it is interesting the way his sort of influence has been so great to a generation of people, but he's not necessarily always highly considered outside of that influence. Why do you think that is? I think there is because when he came up, the world was focusing on a different style of painting, whether that was Richard Prince, whether that was Basquiat, whether that was um, David Sow. I, I don't quite know. I think that, and all those people are good and interesting. And I find I find some beautiful stuff in all that work. But I think Odd Nurtrum just he was at a time when it just wasn't necessarily um being paid attention to as more of a market kind of thing. Just the way like, you know, you know, Mark Ryden and Robert Williams in the early nineties kind of come in and they kind of they they get a good they generate a good wave. Um and Odd Nurtrum yeah, is kind yeah. of behind that wave. I would say I should have yeah, you know, I should mention, yeah, Ryden and as as one of those people like Nerdrum who kind of when I discovered this sort of hidden art world <laughs> was all about the same time. In the eighties, it's like it's funny because it just did not go with the whole cocaine culture, right? right. This is a guy who's kind of gloomy. It's about the 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 depths and muck of soul transformation wall street people high on cocaine did not want that message they don't give a fuck about that you know yeah, so it's like and now here we are in in the the psychedelic renaissance and i think the art is generally in line with that i think too that politics played such a big role in it because of the way that the reaganomics kind of thatcherism sort of era where people were being where industry was being stripped away and people were the the gaps between rich and poor were getting greater and greater i think there was just a certain kind of flash that that people were getting attracted to and odd nerdrums was a slow process a slow burn a like just a and i think the world was moving so fast that i think and i think now too things are moving so fast that i'm curious what's going to happen to painting because of the the you know the speed by which everything is going um and also just the the massive disparity of belief of care of money like it seems like i don't know what era this is i don't know what it matches i don't know either man i have no idea what the fuck is going on i it, it, you know i i thought like when the pandemic was happening i thought what was going what was going to be uh you know that kind of a sort of roaring 20s moment where um we would come out of a, a deeply dissatisfying world event and there would be some sort of conversation of um of, of you know of collective sort of um indulgence and it's happening it's just not happening the way i thought it would what do you mean collective indulgence like in the 20s you had this sort of post world war 1 post spanish flu where people had so many people had died so much to change in terms of the way people could die because of the war that you had people you had like the jazz age you had the sort of uh, prohibition. You had all these kind of like debaucherous sort of, um, I guess this debauchery that was bubbling up and people had like this pent up sort of like, well, what is life? Mm. And here, this is what, you know, what it's going to be is it's going to be um, kind of unhinged celebratory sort of life. You know, there was going to be, obviously it was going to be sort of challenged by writers and musicians and all these different people and painters and all that stuff, stuff was happening in the 20s was so fascinating and even it, there was some even across racial divides there was interesting things happening and then i don't know what's going on now 
you know what I was thinking as I like the twenties, the allusion to the twenties says like a, a parallel. I, I don't know where I, I was listening to a podcast about like what it was like on the ground in the decades following the Protestant revolution for mm-hmm. the, the reformation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that we, we kind of paraphrase that history as like, you know, it was a check on indulgences and in the Catholic church mechanisms through which people could connect with God. And what's fascinating is how out of control that got. And there's these situations throughout European cities where it just got fucking wild. You know, it's like everybody's talking to God and everybody is following the guy with the biggest ear to God. And it was absolute chaos, absolute chaos. I mean, unimaginable horrors and hilarity all at once. I don't think we're far from that. I think that what we are approaching is, I think destabilization would be insufficient of a word. I think so too. (laughs) Well, look, the 20s also gave us the rise of fascism. So, but and the thing is that the fascism at the time, what was what made it so elevated was the advent of what slowly became the advent of television, of different uses of media, and obviously now fascism is is spread through different forms of media, new media, all these different ways in which media can reach people. So there is there are also there's some, some very dark parallels. It's amazing that we give people tools. And they immediately go back to like the reason why the tool was created in the first place, which was to stop the thing from happening. And then we just kind of use it for the same thing over and over again. And yet there's incremental progress. Absolutely. And yet there is incremental progress. It's just, it's not a straight line, but as long as there's just a small percentage more of light than dark, everything's going to be okay. And that's my view. And do you feel that? Yeah, I do. I do. It's going to get ugly, but this is a refinement process. This is a next great leap in human evolution, and it's going to be fucking ugly. But beautiful and liberate, like true liberation. We're at the cusp of that, but we we don't know what that means yet, and it's going to blow people's minds. It's it's going to be hard to take. I've always thought of you as someone with an with an ancient soul. Give me a second here with an old ancient soul from perhaps maybe from the wrong era, but completely okay and understanding of the era he's in. And like, like I feel like you've, oh, like, I always like, like your opinions about like where we are right now and like how you don't sugarcoat it, but you seem fascinated by the time, even though I think of you as an old soul. All right. Um, yeah. What's the question? What's the question? There is no question. <laughs> the question is, do you feel like somebody who, um, I don't know, just when you're a man in your twenties and you're saying you, you know, and Rembrandt's the, and Odd Nurgem are the one you're looking at, like, it's just, just, that's an old soul. I think that's an old soul. I think that someone look, you know, you're kind of, but you're always, you're always of the moment. You're not hiding from now. It's like, you're not wearing like some, you know, you're not wearing like a, um, you don't. You're not dressed in some sort of uniform that lets that makes you seem like you're from a different. You know what I mean? Like you. You don't have. You seem fascinated with now. Yeah. Wow. Um, I don't think things have changed that much. You know. I think it's the same old story. Yeah, I'm definitely fascinated in the old and how we got here and how. It's a it's a very flimsy perception to view it linearly. Mm-hmm. You take that line and put it on the end, and it's a single point. It's all the same thing. It's all the same forces interacting through us towards something. Um, to use a linear language, I don't you know I don't have anything else but that. But yeah, I, I don't. Uh, it all adds up to this. You know what I mean. I am going back, you know, like I'm, I'm reading a lot about ancient philosophy, 
to try to understand how we got here. I guess I don't know why everybody's not doing that. What are you reading? Like, what is something that give me give me an example? Pythagoras, Plato, Hermetics. You know, my my interest in Rembrandt opened me up to the Dutch Golden Age, and that whole history of of painting and particularly in composition. And I started to notice all these things is particularly within the geometry of composition that is pointing to something much older and much deeper. And that brought me to Hermetics and Pythagoras. And I think that these painters, while successful in their time, were hiding things in their paintings to carry these messages forward. You know, this was a dangerous time to be a painter. So, you know, my own interpretation of those works, that that's where that, that has led me. I don't know. That's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But okay. So then let's, but, uh, so, okay. So let's just say this, for example, let's say um, 500 years into the future, somebody sees a Christian Rex Van Minen painting. Uh, the one that's going to be the one that's on the cover of Juxpose for this issue. What is something that you're hiding in it for people to find? And do you even know what you're hiding? No, I don't. I don't. I I think that I'm representing just being very confused and a confused man in action. My whole worldview is crumbling i mean and i think everybody's will too it's it's a flimsy worldview that i was born into mm-hmm. flimsy as fuck yeah and it's falling apart and i'm piecing it together something new and this is what it looks like you know um i'm pointing back to those painters and paintings they were very smart people very very intelligent people far more intelligent than i am um, so the best I can do is point back to them and they are themselves are pointing back even further. And then you start to see that it is a succession. There's this long line of people who have carried this, I mean, for lack of a better word, the esoteric, right. which is hidden, hidden knowledge to know oneself and know who really who we are that's been suppressed for centuries and it still is it still is yeah and i i'm scared honestly like i i'm not um i don't think that we are in a truly safe place to express a lot of this stuff do you think i i've always wanted to know this like what was plato distracted by distracted by like today even the best of thinkers is distracted by bright shiny lights of something what was Plato distracted by? Fear of death, fear of execution. Uh, I would have said fear of execution would have been my his top. mentor, <laughs> yeah, Socrates executed right. for this very thing we're talking about. So, in his books, you have the consensus version of what you read, and then you have what's behind it. What's really behind the allegory of the cave? People can talk about it. And the, the reason it was an allegory to begin with is because it was a dangerous thing to present. Right. Um, right. Something truly revealing of human nature, of the frightening truth of human nature, the frightening truth of human nature when people are confronted with things they don't want to accept. You know, I think the thing that we forget about that allegory is that people were shown that it was shadows on the cave and they revolted. They wanted to kill the person who revealed that. It wasn't a joyous moment of liberation. They wanted back, you know, mm-hmm. they, they wanted it back. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, yeah, that, I think that's what Plato was distracted by. <laughs> what do you think? No, I mean, I, I'm cur- I'm always curious about like when the great, the, the people, the thinkers, the philosophers who basically created the closest thing we could kind of consider to be the language in which we can use to, to, to talk about the human experience are those 
thinkers, right? At least in the Western kind of civilizations, understanding of selfhood, like that they are kind of the the giants of the time, giants of the of of our existence. And I'm just wondering, like when they were on a Wednesday afternoon taking a walk, what was what were the things going on around them that were uh the kind of in-between things happening in the empires and the civilizations that got them to sort of think differently. That that is not that weren't like the most major moments, but like what were like the little things, you know? What were the little annoyances, the little things about society that they were like, I don't know. It, it seems because like, you know, uh, sometimes okay, let's this is you're gonna this is like this is like a curb your enthusiasm moment, but like sometimes when you're like at the grocery store and you get annoyed, right? Let's just say you're at the grocery store, and you're in line, you're annoyed. I sometimes I go like, well, where does that annoyance, where's the birth of that annoyance? Not just for me, but for humans in general. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, like, yeah. so, so like, this is ridiculous, but I, I sometimes wonder like, when did like, was Socrates walking down the street one day and like somebody came out and like asked him something or like got in his way and it like got caused him to go into a deep, dark, like wonderful examination of selfhood. That's what I want to know. Well, from what I understand, Socrates was wild as fuck. If somebody bumped into Socrates on the street and said something, that's where the Socratic method comes from. He wouldn't let it go. He would be in your fucking face and like be hounding you for truth. He'd be that guy. It's easy to get annoyed. I don't know. We just all want it to be so much better. You know, it's so easy to be disappointed. I think everybody has this deep sense that things are not right. Maybe that's been the case all along i don't know i don't know when that point in history was when all of a sudden we don't feel like we're at home and at ease and at one with the universe i mean that i've heard some people suggest that that schism occurred during the enlightenment but i don't know i don't know i mean that certainly seems to be the theme of humanity the general annoyance that things aren't right that this is not okay like it shit needs to be better I haven't even asked you about art, painting, you, artist, but I do think like, okay, so many people who um, I show your work to, um, especially um, I, recently I was showing my, my my girlfriend's dad who was an art teacher and he's a painter and I showed him your work and he's like, this fucking guy, this shit's amazing. He loved it. He like loved it. And he was fast and he... He was obviously fascinated by the technique and he was fascinated with the visuals that you're getting, but he would, he would, you know, the thing that in our conversations about you, so you were, you were a topic of conversation at Christmas. Um, I, I want to know like what you are known for like a style and a method that people are just kind of like slightly dumbfounded by and like just absolutely love visually. And it works so well in person and it works really well digitally, but you've done such a good job of like not like falling into like, this is, this is my trap. This is like, this is what I do. Like you've always moved it along. Have you been sort of motivated to keep it moving and you move slowly, which is also great. You're not like trying to like reinvent the wheel every single time, but you add these little parts every single time. How much do you allow people knowing what your style is to kind of, to kind of peek in a little bit and how do you break out of that? Does that make sense? I, I'm not sure it does. Okay, um, you have a style. You have, but but like you also changed. Like if you look at your body of work, like it also has evolved so much. But like people kind of are so amazed by the style in which you have and the method and the technique. Like how do you like sort of like block that out when you're painting? You mean so I'm not driven by satisfying others' expectations? There you go. That's way better. Maybe, maybe you should be doing the interview. <laughs> uh yeah i don't know i mean i th- painting is such a gift it's such a giving surprising thing that especially this method which is the essentially versions of the venetian painting technique so it's a thing it's not my thing it's something that rembrandt built on right. and that was sort of like bounced around up until chardin it's indirect painting. So yeah, there's, there's method and there's style, right? When we first met, it was like, I was much more rigid in 
it having to be sourced purely surrealistically. Like I had this whole bone to pick with surrealism and the use of that word and what it is and what it isn't. And over the years, I've sort of relaxed that just because that's, you know, I'm, I want to give way to whatever I want in the studio. So if it's not sourced from automatic drawing, that's okay. Sometimes it's a hybrid. Sometimes it's purely that. Sometimes it's almost all representational in fewer, fewer and fewer cases of that. Um, and yeah, so it's more about just been expanding those, that kind of rigid, those rigid uh, boundary restraints. I like Matthew Barney's word of restraint mm-hmm. when, when describing the creative process, like, you know, there were restraints in there in the beginning just, I mean, I think you can go crazy if you don't have restraints. <laughs> you right. can go crazy or become too fetishistic about the method, right? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you fetishize the method, you're just going to be painting nudes and, you know, like this sort of stiff. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I think that like the, the part of me, like I want to be, I want to impress myself. Like I has to have that punch that kind of like intense overwhelming thing. Like I want that for me and I trust I'm not that different. I'm not that different from anybody else. So I trust that if that works in me, that kind of like, if I can make something that is astonishing, then that's probably going to work in other people. So it's not a cart before the horse thing. Do you, and do you feel like you astonish yourself? Like, do you, are you still, do you? Yeah. 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 And that's why yeah. you keep doing it. Yeah. And the cool thing is this, this method is like, it looks really fucking kind of boring initially, but I know like I've done this, it's like this iterative process. I've seen this happen so many times where it's just like suspend your disbelief. Like, yes, this looks stupid and weird and flat. Just keep it going. Just keep showing up every day. And this accretion, this layering by virtue of the method mm-hmm. makes spectacular things. Like it, it, it has the qualities of believability in it. And that is always satisfying to me and unexpected. You know, if somehow it's still as a surprise, <laughs> you know, what was Leonardo's quote? Like if you're, if the result exceeds your expectation, you're a fucking idiot or something like that. What does he say? Wow. I <laughs> so don't know. I might be that. I might be that. That's a you good know, quote. Like I, I definitely, I definitely, yeah, I think Leonardo said that, something like that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I do surprise myself, you know, um, um, I, don't, I don't know what that says about my intellect or my planning process, but it works. I'm happy with it, you know? Tell me about the gummies. Okay. Well, the gummies are a product of a confluence of several things. So I'll first speak to the technical, which is I was fascinated with the the difference between Northern Renaissance approach to painting and the Italian Renaissance approach to painting, which I believe is the use of a white ground versus a a, the use of a mid-tone ground the former allows for greater luminosity but more rigid application of paint you can't deviate from the drawing whereas the italians developed the mid-tone ground because they wanted idealized beauty with the of the human form so it was less about didacticism and more about the figure itself. So they needed to be able to move an elbow, shift the neck, tilt the head, eliminate a hand, and the mid-tone ground allowed for those kinds of changes in the process. My desire was to hybridize those two, to have a mixed ground. So there are portions of the painting that are on white ground, and there are portions of the painting that are on mid-tone ground. So that's the technical. So that that's why the gummies tend to glow is because they're actually painted on a different ground than everything else. So you have a true luminosity contrast. So the other confluence is conceptual. What I'm always after is increasing contrast. 
in every way. How can I, in terms of not just value, the, what we typically think of as contrast, but also textural, emotional. I mean, you can kind of go on from there. How do I create contrast everywhere I can? In this case, it was how do I create something to contrast these chiaroscuroed, heavy, tenebristic forms, the body, the weight of the body. Like what, what is going to contrast with that? Something that defies gravity, something that is transparent, something that's high chroma, something that's whimsical, almost off-putting whimsical. Right. And what was interesting, what's interesting that happened is that what I didn't expect is that the, what was formerly the grotesque in the, the flesh, I think it inverted. It became much more sympathetic because the gummies themselves took the role of the grotesque, the repugnant, the sort of like, you know, thickly sweet quality. And I think which engenders the body with more empathy. Yeah. Does that, does that answer the question? Uh, I mean, the, I think that's actually really that last part there. It's so fascinating about how that might have given the viewer the experience of sympathy to the flesh by bringing in this, like, like you said, whimsical sort of universal object into the painting. I mean, I really don't know what a gummy is. I guess it's an object. Yeah, it's almost a, it's almost a, uh, it's a, liminal substance <laughs> yeah right it's, yeah, exactly it's barely like it shouldn't yeah. exist it's you shouldn't not, there's no you shouldn't nutritional eat, value it's like shouldn't yeah. eat it yeah I, that's why i had it's, to kind of think it's about mouth, it's like it's more like food for the eye and for some it's distracting it, it's a it's a strange thing yeah but it it's also stands in the it's it takes the place of the flower in a yeah. traditional still life right? right yeah which was getting back to the technical solution it was like how do we create how do I create something that is like a flower, that is light, that has a sense of weightlessness without, you, know, you can't accomplish that by building up thick paint, in my view. There's a right. better way to do that. Right. So, and then like, that's basically what you've started to do. You've started to make these gummy floral arrangements, uh, I guess yeah. is what we could call them. And those have sort of acted as both a very contemporary and also a very classic sort of form of the still life. Yeah. yeah. But, but like, what, like, why do we worship the old still lives? Like, why, why do we look at them? I, I don't know. There's something like deeply moving to me when I Absolutely. see those things. And again, the hidden knowledge, the esotericism within those paintings is the geometry is the color triading. There's subliminal things happening that lend this, it, it they it draws you in without you even being conscious of it. Similar to the portrait, yeah. Stable pyramid sphere, it it lends us. It gives a sense of quiet and peace and tranquility to communicate with this portrait without even knowing. You automatically approach it in that way. The still lives are the same thing. There's a sense of inner harmony by virtue of composition that brings you to that engagement with a lot of the work already done. When you want to talk technique with somebody, who is a peer that you might call or communicate with if you are in need of a tip? In need of a tip. Or I just mean, in need, I, or, or need of, to express like a, more of a tech, not like a philosophical, but more of a technical thing. Who is a peer of yours that technically you might chat with about painting? Andrew Sendor. Mm. Who who can really nerd out on the technical? Yeah, and then I mean, I I have a apprenticeship program where we're. This is we should have a whole other podcast about this, but it's it's basically a yeah it's a painting nerd fest, and and trying to dig deeper into all, all these things. We should do it like where it's like a roundtable discussion with a bunch of painters. Yeah, I would love that. I love that. Um, what what is it? What yeah, has got yeah. you? But what's got you excited right now? Like we can end it on like let's end it because we look. People are gonna see the issue. Um, they're gonna read the interview. They're gonna listen to this interview. They're going to you know buy the magazine. 
what are you what is Christian Rex Van Minen excited about, at least that is sort of something that they can leave us on a high note for the next couple <laughs> months? Because I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I can yeah. a couple months at a time. Oh, well, I mean, I'm really into what's coming out about extraterrestrials interdimensionality ai all of the, the nexus point between those three things okay. i think is very exciting okay very exciting stuff okay. um you have to part discernment is key but is. uh yeah yeah that's pretty fucking exciting man i mean we're so distracted by so much other stuff it's hard to just I mean, it's, it's baffling that that's not front and center yeah that's pretty exciting stuff I, it's amazing that we've gotten ourselves to the point where the thing that we've always wanted to talk about is starting to come out and we're not even talking about it enough. It's like, it, what else could there be to talk about besides these things? And we don't like, we're all yeah. so consumed. Examine that. Yeah. Stay, stay with that point right there. Yeah. That, and then follow that. Uh, <laughs> hey man, I'm so grateful for you. I, I don't even know how to really express that. I, I literally would not be here. If it weren't for you, you like literally made my dreams come true. I'm living my dream right now. And that's largely in part to you and your support. I'm super grateful. I am just really, really happy. I've been able to see friends and these wonderful people continue to make art for so long and enjoy the process. And we can all kind of go do this together and kind of figure out what the fuck and have our own little place in the little history of art, whatever the hell this is. That's, that's the joy. Yeah, well, I'm down. I'm down, man. I'm down. I'm not gonna run off to the hills, you know. I'm not gonna quit social media. I, I'm here for it. I, I'll, I'm down for like, let's just find a new way. I want to get deeper into it yeah. with the heads. I'm not will. I'm not looking to win everybody over, man. I want to yeah. like talk to the other true believers, brother. <laughs> Christian, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Happy Valentine's oh, man. Day. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. All my love. All my love to you. Amazing. That was Christian Rex Van Minen and Evan Preco in conversation, taking us on, honestly, one hell of a journey. Be sure to keep an eye out for the latest issue of Juxtapose featuring Christian Rex Van Minen on the cover. We'll be back with you guys real soon. Till that moment comes, take care of yourselves and each other. Bye.